0: the questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: Higher education is and has been at a crisis point in terms of the decline of quality academic instruction. The curriculum has been diluted, and generally speaking, the faculty today have less expertise than their predecessors. Now, with COVID's acceleration of the, quote-unquote, disruption agenda, institutions of higher education or post-secondary institutions are becoming truly predatory. The anchor institution model is one that will benefit oligarchs and tech investors to the detriment of students, communities, and even our constitutional system. If young people and their parents understood the vast difference between university education today And what it was like 20 years ago, I think many would decide against university education altogether. But the demolition of our economic systems under the pretext of the COVID pandemic will likely have the opposite effect. More students will be flocking to these predatory institutions in order to get some micro-credential that they believe, mistakenly, will distinguish them from the masses of other job seekers across the globe. The next special guest was teaching at the University of Tulsa when a dramatic restructure was announced. And that was what catalyzed her research into the structural crisis of higher education, its relationship to the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and how universities are being transformed into vehicles for impact, ESG investing. For those who don't know, ESG means environmental, social, and corporate governance. The three central factors in measuring the sustainability and societal impact of an investment in a company or business. What she learned about higher education was a gateway to understanding the parallel shifts in basic education and in other social service sectors, such as healthcare, mental health, urban planning and workforce development, criminal justice reform, and policing. About six months into her research, she discovered how social impact finance and pay-for-success contracts factor into the globalist disruption agenda this is probably one of the most important and least discussed features of the fourth industrial revolution it's the financial mechanism by which corporate investors will move capital to generate profits in an economy that's been demolished and has left most people dependent on universal basic income
0: you are listening to veritas if this is your first time welcome home To listen to tonight's full interview, and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button, at VeritasRadio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick.
1: Julianne Romanello earned her doctorate in political philosophy from Baylor University in Waco, Texas in 2012. While at Baylor, Ms. Romanello earned the Richard D. Hoff Distinguished Graduate Student in Political Science Award and passed Ph.D. comprehensive examinations with distinction. She is the author of many publications and is a wife and a mother of four children. Dr. Julianne Romanello joins us from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hello, Dr. Romanella, and welcome to Veritas. And directly from Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'd like to welcome Dr. Julian Romanello to Veritas. Hello, how are you?
2: Thank you for having me.
1: My pleasure. May I call you Julian? Yes, please do. Thank you for being brave. I saw a few of your videos recently. Let's start with your story. How did you wake up to this reality?
2: (laughs) Okay, well, I had concrete event happened. Um, in 2019, I was teaching in the honors program at the University of Tulsa. Um, it's a great books program and TU as we call it. Um, it is my, it, it's actually my undergraduate alma mater. And so it was really a dream job that I had to teach in the honors program at, at my undergraduate institution. And, you know, I was, I was really absorbed in my students and I was a bit on the periphery because I was a visiting professor. Um, but the whole year I was there, you could just see and feel the tension in the place. And that tension really came to a head in April when all of the faculty, this is April of 2019, when all of the faculty were summoned to a meeting in a, a large auditorium, um, I'm trying to think. I can't really remember how many hundreds of of faculty members were present, but it was standing room only in the Lorton Performing Arts Center. And at this meeting, no one knew what was going to be discussed. They had an idea about that it would involve the strategic plan of the university, but um, the way that this true commitment plan was was presented to us was just astounding to me. I mean, it was a total transformation of the university. It was a shift to, um, basically a workforce preparation model rather than a rigorous liberal arts and, you know, um, natural sciences education that the university had always, um, been known for. And, so I, we were all in shock, and the language that they used was very striking to me. It was technical, it was cold, it was steely, and I just, I, I maybe this sounds cheesy, but I had a gut feeling that this was really a sinister plan. And so I started to dig, and, you know, I looked at some of the philanthropic um, partnerships that the university had had and partnerships with the business community. And it was from there that I just went way down the rabbit hole.
1: <laughs> How has this not brought the hammer, the proverbial hammer to you?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, they were going to, it had been discussed in that my contract would not be renewed um, after the year, so it, and that was, bef- I mean, I knew about that before the the plan was rolled out. And my director, the director of the honors program, who's a dear friend and a lovely individual, she really fought hard to keep my position because the honors program generated revenue for the university. So um, I think she had figured that. My salary, uh, the the cost for my salary and benefits actually netted the university like nine tuition paying students. Uh, whereas if we didn't have the honors program, they would have selected other institutions. So it was a really strange deal, but I knew that I was not going to come back. And I think that, you know, that that maybe had. <laughs> has had something to do with the fact that I haven't been, I don't know, subjected to a lawsuit or anything like this. You know, I'm, I'm no longer teaching at the university, but I think, I think probably, you know, I am a mom of four and I started, you know, I try to keep my social media, um, you know, pretty factual, pretty positive. I don't, you know, I don't take a partisan stance and sort of calling out the key players. And, and I don't know, I think I figured out the social finance aspect of it. And really, I think that people are afraid to come after me, because then it would bring it to light. (laughs) You know, there would just be more publicity and, and then more people would figure out what's going on with social impact finance and the corporate takeover of the academy.
1: When did you become a researcher into techno-fascism? Was it before (laughs) this event or after?
2: No, it was before, or it was after. I'm sorry, before this event, I was completely naive. So, um, you know, I was one of those annoying people who would sort of, you know, if someone said, well, Big Pharma is really trying to, you know, to poison people. I would say, come on. That that kind of thing doesn't happen. I just can't imagine that possibly happening. That that was me. Um, you know, and that was sort of just this naive trust in the goodness of people. It wasn't any, you know, allegiance to big pharma or anything like that. But um, it was having that that concrete event happen and and watching how brutal it was, you know, to to the faculty who were involved, to the students, to the community. Um I just I just knew that there was something up. And you know, my academic research is in um well, it's <laughs> how do I say it succinctly? I studied ideology and the existential causes of ideology. So I think I had been prepared to see what was happening. And I've always been a curious person. Um, But really, I was too sort of busy with old books and children to pay much attention to what we might call conspiracy theory.
1: Where most curriculum is written and administered, you probably know this by now, (laughs) by a few key players. They're going to remain nameless, and I'm sure you know who they are. You are supposed to read from the script, and if anyone deviates, then this could turn into losing tenure, funding, grants. Did you identify this well within the belly of the beast?
2: You know, I I really had not noticed that so much because you know, I had been teaching as an adjunct. Um, like I said, I have four young kids. My oldest is nine and a half and my youngest is two and a half. So I've been teaching as an adjunct at several institutions and, and, you know, I would teach a full load, you know, sometimes five courses a semester. But when you're an adjunct, you're a little bit out of the loop on things. And then You know, when I had moved into a full-time teaching position, I was, you know, really concentrating on getting that first prep ready. And, you know, I love teaching and I love reading. So I wasn't paying a lot of attention to what was going on at, say, faculty meetings or departmental meetings. Now, a lot of my, I have, I had colleagues at the university who were friends and they would, they would talk about this kind of thing, but. You know, these were professors in the honors program, and then in the philosophy department. And you know, TU was a, was unique actually in having a very rigorous and I would say very balanced uh, philosophy program. And it had been like that with um, with the political science department for a while too, which is is very rare in the academy. So so you. You know, the people that I was around were doing quality work that wasn't from a script. But, and I, and I just tried not to sort of bother with people who were doing otherwise because they weren't, you know, it didn't affect me and I didn't know them well enough or have a professional relationship that was, that would have made it appropriate for me to breach that subject with them. But now as I have, you know, really dug into the the tentacles of the corporate world and and how it has infiltrated the academy. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. There are hiring strategies in place that that promote a certain script. Um, I was just looking at the American Council on Education's website. And their script is all about internationalization and creating 21st century global citizens. And, yeah, if, you know, they say on their website and we have here in Oklahoma, uh, you know, our uh, state plan for public institutions um, supports this model where, you know, you're not hired unless you have demonstrated a commitment, and that's a buzzword, um, a commitment to these goals that, you know, pretty much align with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. You're not going to get hired. Uh, and if you somehow slip through the cracks, then you are certainly not going
1: to get tenure. I've been discussing Marxist, techno-fascist <laughs> dictatorships for quite a while, but you distilled it even more to techno-fascism. I like that. Our listeners are very well versed about this, but for those who might not know what we're saying, can you define technofascism?
2: Yeah, I would say that the the way I have used it, it is, you know, the melding of corporate like private corporate and governmental power and brought to bear on citizens, on people. Um, Through a steely and unreasonable, like as in you can't reason with it, um, technological uh, apparatus. So artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, um, smart contracts, you know, it's the sensors and connectivity of of all things that are reported back to this uh, corporate governmental machine in order to control our lives.
1: I remember years ago I interviewed a fine lady with the name of Charlotte Thompson Isserby about yes. the. Uh, do you know who she is? The deliberate dumbing down of, I call it the world, not only America, the world. Do you know of her work?
2: Well, you know, I, she is on my list of people to read, um, because I've bumped into her name a couple of times. And so I have not spent time reading her work, but she is on the list for sure.
1: When she says the deliberate dumbing down, I I say the world, she says America. Do you think the United Nations have their fingerprints in all of this?
2: Yes. Now I think, I think the United Nations is a tool of, um, of the bankers, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yes, the United Nations definitely has a hand in this. Um, I think to add legitimacy to the appearance of the thing, you know, if, if you didn't have some kind of a, of a governmental body that, Looked like it was promoting some kind of common good. I don't think people would buy this stuff. So, so the, so the UN to me seems like, um, like a, a cover or a sort of global kindness washing. But yes, I think that they're definitely trying to, you know, dumb down Americans in particular really, because Americans have been advantaged materially and in terms of our freedoms um, to speak our minds. We're going to have to be taken down several notches. So while it certainly, you know, it is a process that's going to apply to the world, um, I think we're going to feel it the most here and it's going to be the strongest here. And they, you know, they do that under This wonderful term of equity, you know, which sounds to people who hear it, they think, yes, equality and, you know, fairness. But they don't understand that equity is actually about making sure that everyone has the exact same thing as everyone else. It's all tracked and traced and it's all perfectly uh, suited to the functioning of this global
1: machine. Interesting. And when I was discussing all of this with her, she mentioned and she provided a, a copy of a test. I believe it was from the late 1800s or early 1900s. You probably know but what I'm about to say. But it was a third grade school test, which is the equivalent right now of about a junior in college. So obviously, <laughs> 100 years, the dumbing down has been prevalent. But I think it's coming to a crescendo now to the point that maybe in the next 10, 20 years, cursive may resemble an ancient lost language to many.
2: Yes, I think so. And I think the reason why uh, schools aren't teaching cursive is because they don't, they, with the UN agenda, they are the technocrat agenda. They don't want people to be able to record their own thoughts privately. And cursive enables you to do that quickly, and so that is a danger to to people who are concerned with equity and with um, having no privacy and monitoring everything. Um, yes, I think you know the World Economic Forum, which is now partnering with the United Nations they have a a promotional video for the fourth industrial revolution. And it talks in that video about, it mentions, and and I can't remember the exact phrase used, but it says we need to transition from, you know, protecting free speech to protecting free thought. And what they really, what I take that to mean is that individual language, individual thought, individual aptitudes, and intelligence. Those are all a, a threat to this, this Borg-like mind that has to be shared. So, you know, you have to dumb people down so that they, you know, they don't realize what they're
1: losing. But don't you think that the word individual, independent, sovereign, it- critical thinker, all those things they seem to be a threat as you said to the Borg mind because it's all for the quote unquote greater good the collective
2: yes and you know you have to you have to convince people that in independent thought or an individual self is selfish and you know these the technocrats or social engineers. They've spent big bucks figuring out how to do this. You know, one place I had looked at, I it was either Deloitte or McKinsey, the marketing firms, mm-hmm. accounting firms, marketing and accounting. And there was a piece. It was you know it was a sort of blog. And it was talking about how you overcome people's attachments to their individual rights, and it suggested that you that administrators or corporations that want to uh, to move toward this communitarian ideology, it says, you know, you need to substitute the word love. <laughs> In, in place of individual rights. So you need to start stressing these human connections. And they use the word love. We need to say this is a place of love, of joy. And that, and that will help you to get over um, or that will help you to encourage employees or students or whomever to get over their attachment to their individual selves. I was shocked to see that.
1: You and I are parents of young children, and when we look at this pandemic, if I may use that term with you, sure. and you have the the fact that we have to stay home, and, and many parents out there who used to have a full-time job, many of them had to resign or, or, or quit because they could not go to work if the work did not allow them to be at home with their children. How how do you think this is changing child development? Do you think it's better? for a child to be homeschooled? I know some people feel that it's it's better and something that they need, the social interaction in order for their brains to develop appropriately.
2: Oh, that's such an important and such a large question. I mean, I guess I would say first off, I think that this is deliberately cruel to children. Um, I think that, you know, I'll just be honest and say, I think that this entire pandemic is designed to traumatize people. It's designed to make people fearful of each other and especially children. Um, I have, I have fought against masking children because I think it's abusive. I think children use full faces to discern intent, to understand just the sound of words to, you know, connect with other people. And I think that, you know, some of the policies that are being, um, dictated to us, I think that those are designed to create fear among kids and, and, and to separate them from others to be afraid of people. So, so I think it's, it's cruel and I think it's tied to, impact investing, which I'm sure we'll get into later, but that is a new financial model that, that makes a profit off of fixing broken people, (laughs) broken things. So it's it's actually very profitable for the, for the technocrats to traumatize children, because then you have the, you know, you have a, a whole population that needs to be fixed In terms of, you know, their ability to communicate and their stress levels, mental health, and so forth. So, so I just, it it actually like, I have such a visceral reaction to even trying to talk about this. Because I see that my kids are, they want to go out and play with their friends. And, you know, so many of our friends, you know, my kids had gone to a private parochial school I pulled them out because I did not want them to wear a mask at school or any time. And I think that my children understand why I did that. I think they like that. We're bumbling through homeschool because I'm, you know, I, I wasn't planning on it before this and I've got a very active two year old, but, <laughs> um, But I think, so I think that the homeschool has been good, but, you know, my kids, none of their friends really want to get together. I mean, their parents are, are nervous about this virus and, and that's difficult. It's difficult for me to explain to my children that other parents are so afraid of this thing that, you know, they, they don't want to get together for a play day. That's really tough. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Let's dissect it. And, I'm sorry, oh, finish what you're saying.
2: Well, I was going to just go on to, to another part of the question that you asked, which was, you know, is it good to have kids at the kids at home? And, you know, I think that that is good. It's it is a par- it's a paradigm shift for me to figure out how to manage the chaos and um, to figure out what they really need to learn. You know, I'm, I'm an, I am an academic, so I want them to read things and think about them, but maybe they really just need to learn how to go fish. (laughs) So it is a struggle and I don't know. I hope that my kids come. I hope that my kids bounce back, um, stronger. I hope that they develop character through this. But, but one thing that I think is, is very tough is that, you know if someone is working at home if they have that luxury then it's hard on the kids to to understand why say daddy isn't really he's here for 8 hours but he's not talking to them you know he's busy doing things that's a little bit confusing for right. young kids and so i don't know maybe that's just mine but i think that this whole thing is really
1: it's really twisted I think for the longest time, and this for decades, perhaps, again, I keep saying this is the crescendo, but for the longest time, one of the goals was to separate us. I mean, look at the word apartment, to keep people apart, because they don't want people together. And I think right now, the one of the industries in business that has been affected the most by this pandemic is the restaurant business. I think they don't do two things. They want to control the food supply, and they don't want people to get together. Because this goes against their script.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the you know, the food supply is very important. And that goes to the United Nations One Health Program. And they want to track food. Rockefeller Foundation is interested in tracking food and making sure that there's an equitable distribution. And really, they want to know who chooses healthy food and who doesn't. And independent restaurants make it difficult to track and trace that kind of thing. So that's one aspect of it. But separating people and, you know, preventing them from getting together and discussing what's going on is a critical part of this plan, which I think is a, it's a coup d'etat. Um, you know, if people were to get together, they would see each other's humanity, (laughs) you know, they they would touch each other and human beings need to be touched. They need to, you know, feel, you know, the, just the presence of other people around. Um, and we would talk about how stupid this is, (laughs) you know, and then we would get excited about it and we would come up with a plan. To overthrow it. And you could do that perhaps with less surveillance than you have through a Zoom meeting. You know, now all of our interactions are monitored. And so there's no privacy. There's already no privacy. Um, and even if you have people over to your house now, I mean, there's no privacy and, and it is tough to get privacy at a restaurant, but at least you're out you know, feeling and acting like a human being rather than a hamster. So, you know, I, I don't know how the, the restaurant industry is going to survive. I, I have no idea how they're going to make it. But gosh, I hope that local communities will start to recognize where this is going and why it's going that way. And I hope that they'll support their restaurant tours and you know their community each other by getting together having a drink having a meal doing things that are that are life affirming rather than you know disease fearing
1: more than a hamster I think a lab rat would be more more appropriate with microphones and floodlights watching you 24/7 but they they want to know the caloric intake this is the UN uh the caloric intake to make it equitable uh, they they want to create all these uh, genetically modified organisms that are not even real uh, meat or, or 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 even vegetables or fruit but if they really were concerned Julian about our health why are they not discussing nutrition Supplements, exercise, exposure to the sun, fresh air, not to mention the poisons in our air, water, and food supply, neither is being discussed.
2: Right. You're exactly right. And and that that's the answer is that they do not want healthy people. <laughs> Just like they don't want independent people. Just like they don't want intelligent people. They do not want healthy people. Because they, the part of the technocratic plan is, you know, it's to get everyone on universal basic income. They're wrecking the economy so that people will have to be on universal basic income. When we, when the 99% or maybe, who knows, maybe it's only 70%, whatever it will be. Uh, When we're on universal basic income, we're not going to have the ability to invest in, you know, technologies or products, the manufacturing or goods or services. We're not going to be able to invest in ways that could um, that could bolster capital markets. And, you know, I'm not an economist, but. What I've learned about capital movements and the fourth industrial revolution is that, you know, these billionaires and hedge funds, they still want to make a profit, even after they have reduced our economy to shambles. And we are all on fixed, you know, government incomes and are unable to invest. So the question that that these technocrats have been mulling over in their minds is really how do we have sustainable economic development in the kind of techno fascist world that we're creating and in 2010 we saw the the creation of the first social impact bond in in England um, and I can talk more about that as we as we continue our conversation. But that this new f- financial mechanism, social impact bond or more broadly, social impact finance or pay for success contracts, that is, you know, in 2010, they figured out how to put this thing together. And that is the, the way that. Our elites are going to be able to move money in, you know, once they have made us all destitute. What a social impact is, is it's, create, it's moving the needle. It's creating some kind of uh, positive change. And it's, it pays profits for you know, moving people or things toward these UN Sustainable Development Goals. So you want to start if, if you're, if that kind of financing is moving your, um, your capital, then you want to start with a very low baseline. (laughs) You want sick people because you're going to get paid if you fix them and you, and if they're sicker, they're easier to fix. You don't have to fix them as much. So I think we're not, you know, to bring this back around to how you frame the question, they don't want healthy people who aren't going to need corporate uh, or governmental interventions. That doesn't pay anything. (laughs) Healthy people don't, uh, they're not going to be a source of revenue for the, the system. So, You know, they're arguing that, you know, people need to be locked up, stay in their houses, not touch people. Uh, You have to order food or you go through a drive-thru and you eat a lot of processed junk. Um, And you get fat (laughs) at home, not going out and doing your regular routine. And then once we all come out of this fat, depressed, Uh, with diabetes and and any other sort of chronic but manageable disease, then the social impact investors can fix us. (laughs) And they'll make a lot of money on it. So I think that's a long and winding answer to say that right now trauma and brokenness are, they are profit centers for technocrats.
1: I think this has been an exercise in compliance to to see how far they can push their agenda before they get any pushback and and so far and I hate to say it they haven't seen that much much uh, pushback unfortunately as i always say the the planet is composed of 75% water and 75% of people who are asleep perhaps there's a 25% out there who's ready to finally say enough is enough. But speaking of universal basic income, that seems to be the nouveau term for the youth to say, Oh, I look forward to having that in the future. But <laughs> look at Cuba, look at Russia, look at Venezuela. These are not new terms in Cuba right now, whether you are a heart surgeon or a janitor, you make the same. $26.75 per month. You know, Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, he says you won't own anything and that is a good thing and to my surprise a lot of our youth are welcoming those thoughts yes
2: well i think that i think that it is you know common core has and public schools are media you know absent parents who've let their kids use a lot of technology um you know today's young people don't have a good grasp of history and they don't have a good grasp of of individualism they don't have a good grasp of totalitarianism and so yes I think that they are welcoming the idea of universal basic income thinking that it's it's really going to be this pie-in-the-sky, leisurely uh, knowledge economy. They're fooled by the words. And I think you have a—I'm I'm, I'm just sort of using these stereotypes. I'm not being very guarded here,
1: but— Oh, um, lower your guard. Take your gloves off. Don't worry.
2: I'm not very good at that anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you have a lot of parents who are— who are trying to be nice, decent people. And so they talk about kindness and mindfulness too much and their kids have become kind of wimpy. You know, they don't know that there's some things worth fighting for. They don't know that, that important things require great sacrifice and that if things are handed to us, we're not going to appreciate them. They're going to become ordinary and, And I really think that just many, many young people have been convinced of the narrative about structural racism and gender, um, you know, discrimination. I think that they've been convinced of that so much that they really feel guilty and they really feel like like they are bad people because they come from a tradition that has blemishes or something. And, you know, I like, there have been major problems in race relations, you know, especially when you look back at like, um, the way that urban neighborhoods, like city planners have treated urban neighborhoods, you know, and, and there are those policies to be sure. And we have a history of you know, tensions. I don't have to go into that with you. But, but I think that our, that our young people have heard so much of that and they, they haven't, a lot of it, they probably haven't even experienced. They've just heard of it. And so they're, they're really detached from the past and they're sort of rootless. And I think that they're, they're good hearted and, So that all of those things together makes this wonderful solution of universal basic income sound like a walk in the park and and like it's going to really solve everyone's problems. But but they're, you know, they're going to have a rude awakening.
1: It's nice to be mindful and meditate and and there's a time and a place for singing Kumbaya. But in times like (laughs) these... We cannot meditate our problems away. And I think this is going to offend some people. But there's also this agenda to feminize men and masculinize, if I can use that term, women. Do you see that happening? Yes. Yes,
2: absolutely. And, you know, and I should say, I mean, I'm, I liked working. <laughs> you know, I'm not working now outside of the home. Uh, but, you know, so I, I understand women wanting a professional career and, um, and so there's that, but, but yes, I think that it is not, it's not accepted for men to be strong, to be fighters, to be providers. And, you know, part, I think a lot of that has come from, you know, the corporate culture. I mean, that's, and ultimately, I think there's those are the same people who are really controlling the U.N. or, you know, the big corporations. Uh, but, you know, when men work office jobs and they're not getting out and, you know, kind of doing primal manly type things, you know, they get a habit of of being, I don't know, softer. And then with women and girls, you know, that's a that. uh Gender equity and education are both UN sustainable development goals. And so what we're seeing right now is a huge push, uh, for women leaders, women, uh, business owners. This is how, those are the terms that they use. Now, the, in reality, they're not going to be leaders in any meaningful sense of the word. They're going to be, uh, cheerleaders and followers. (laughs) But, you know, it, the, There's something about this agenda that it wants to get young girls early and make them feel like they don't need men. And, you know, I, I think of myself as a strong woman, but, you know, I want my husband to stand up and fight this. (laughs) You know, like I think strong women want to be surrounded by strong men (laughs) you know and that and so yeah you you have to break down our our nature to make the this techno fascist thing work and uh, and also they don't want us to procreate you know they this is about population control and it's about making it uh like making it not cool to be a woman who wants to have children. Um, it's about, it's a, it, it's really about like, hmm, let me see. How could I say it? It's a, it's about divorcing like children, like from procreation. So they want to give, they want to encourage pleasure seeking, but they don't want sex to lead to, real human children. So you make sex you encourage sex between people who have been sort
1: of unsexed in the media. I don't know if that if I
2: explained that clearly I hadn't really thought I was going to talk a lot about that, but I do think it's happening.
1: Now, we're opening up on Doris Box here, so there's gonna be a lot of subjects you did not expect to discuss, but I'm sure <laughs> they're the tip of your iceberg, and I like to get under water to, to to see, but as you're right pleasure-seeking, immediate gratification. Uh, but let me go back for a second before I forget your comments about Common Core. Common Core always, always bothered me when it was really prevalent a few years ago. Thankfully, I think is it's a species in extinction, hopefully. What do you think was the purpose, the real purpose and the agenda behind Common Core? Was it to frustrate students and teachers? What was the real agenda?
2: I think the well, the real agenda is to come up with a universal framework for uh, tracking human capital, um, skills, and competencies, and so that human beings can be evaluated over and against each other with a universal set of uh, credentials, if you will. And you know, I when I remember. I guess it was maybe 2000, the early 2000s. And so I was young, just out of undergrad. And I had a few teacher friends who were talking about Common Core, but I wasn't really paying attention to it. And I would always ask them, what is this? And why are people so upset? And I never really, I never got a good answer. And then I was distracted with my own studies and it would only be, you know, after the crisis at my university that I revisited, you know, the question, what is Common Core? And so in the course of, you know, trying to save the university here in Tulsa, you know, I I met with a lot of education activists across Oklahoma. And I met one wonderful woman, her name is Linda Murphy. And she fought Common Core, she has fought Common Core for, you know, 30 years. And in Oklahoma, Common Core was was repealed. Now it's been replaced by something that is, you know, pretty much the same thing. I think it's uh, MAPS is the acronym. I'm not sure what it stands for. Um, but, but Linda told me, you know, she was explaining how Common Core came about, and she was saying that it Really went back to these PISA standards that were used in Chinese education, and I, I was just I was shocked. I, I'm shocked every day at this. Stuff. I said, "Why on earth would we be emulating what the Chinese are doing?" And she said, "Well, it's because you know that's that's the goal. It's to." to have a technocratic society that is much like the Chinese society. And, you know, I just, I, I, in a way I was like, no, she, she's not, she couldn't, she has to be mistaken on this. Well, she wasn't. And sure enough, when I started looking into Oklahoma's connections at the university level with Chinese businesses, with Chinese uh, educational institutions and universities. Then there it is. It's all right there. We are you know, we're establishing these connections and um student exchanges and standards exchanges so that American education can uh compete with Chinese Chinese education and be evaluated uh you know, with the same, like the same basic credentials. So that's what it is. It's training students to, you know, think like, uh, like good compliant uh, members of, of the collective. And, and it is all over. I mean, and they, they have repackaged it in different ways. Um, but we're, what it's going toward now is a personalized learning model. And so that is, that, it, I mean, that doesn't sound, it sounds like it would, might be the antithesis of Common Core, if you're saying personalized learning. But what is, what connects those two things is, that is the skills tracking so Common Core did its best to measure and assess knowledge, skills, competencies. Well, personalized learning is going to be virtual learning for the most part or it could be it could be experiences and a you know you go to a library and scan your QR code on your smartphone and it says yes, someone has spent 45 minutes in the library reading a book on X, (laughs) Y, Z, ding, this goes on your blockchain, uh, you know, learner record. (laughs) Um, so it could, it, you know, it doesn't have to be, I guess, directly on a screen, but it's all going to be tracked virtually and through web-based applications. And, and that's, what's common is the tracking and cataloging of, you know, it, it even goes to your personality, your pre- your preferences, your choices and friends. Um, it's all right there. It's, it is really a sinister program to measure and assess human beings.
1: In the middle of this pandemic, one thought came to mind when I saw all the children being at home, homeschooled. I thought for one second, what if the goal among many is to remove schools. And just like in North Korea, they have four TV channels, all state-owned, and one Mm -hmm. school system for the entire country. What if the goal is to have one school, not brick and mortar, but just one script for every single one, and every child is watching the same class and the same grade every single day? Do you think that's one of the goals?
2: Yes. Now, I think it's going to be a little bit more nuanced than that because of how our technology has developed so we will have personalized and adaptive programs so there will be a lot of, of standardization in the universal curriculum but it's going to it's going to be delivered to each child in a way that captures the data on that child, um, captures the skills and and competencies, personality uh, types, things like that. And it will measure those competencies, that catalog or that learner profile against the needs of the workforce. And if you have a child who has, say, you know, an artistic gift or aptitude or just, you know, preferences. And maybe that child is a little spunky or, you know, quirky. And and your community, your regional um, economy, if it doesn't need someone with that profile, that artistic, quirky profile, then the program of learning, the personalized program, Will actually adapt in order to deliver a kind of indoctrination to that child that will make her uh, into the type of person that is needed by the workforce. So if you need coders, like computer programming, or not even programming, coding is lower than that, I think. If you need coders, who are just going to write a script uh, without questioning it, and you have a real shortage of those. Then this personalized adaptive learning model is going to take this artsy little girl, <laughs> and it's going to it's going to give her a series of of learning modules that, in effect, are conditioning her to be something that she's not. So you're going to have these standards and everyone's going to be talking in the same way and using the same language, but they're also going to be these personalized solutions that, that really take any ounce of remaining individualism out of children. And it's going to fashion them to be tools in whatever industry is needing workers.
1: Let's move for a moment before I forget about student debt. This is something that's on the radar. Many want to forgive it. What about the people that did not go to college? They had to start their own business. And now you have a bunch of students graduating with, and I hate to say this because I say this like a broken record, a uh, Mm -hmm a degree in underwater basket weaving that's not going to get him a job. And shouldn't universities, just like uh let's just put banking on the side here. If you want to go apply for a mortgage, they do a financial x-ray on you to make sure that you are worthy, credit worthy, that you'll be able to pay for that mortgage. At least they have collateral. But when it comes to student debt, if I go to an institution right now and I say, I want to... You uh, just name name one absurd uh, degree, and there are thousands of them. I No questions asked. They just give me the funding. Why? Because the government guarantees those loans. Don't you think universities should have skin in the game at least 50%? And if I default because I'll never be able to get a job on that, they have to suffer. That way, they can reduce tuition, which continues to rise indiscriminately. What is your take and your position when it comes to student loans?
2: Well, you know, it's, I'm not sure how the specifics of, you know, what universities contribute or how that, you know, how their federal funding works. Like, I don't know the exact numbers to really, like, analyze how that relationship benefits universities versus other institutions, like, uh, you know, the um, lenders, you know, is, or something like this. So without getting into that and, and admitting that that's way over my head, then I would say that it is, it's a complex problem that I think is really designed to do two things, one, it's designed, well, maybe not even to. Well, I'll start with two and then I might add a few more. So I think it's designed to trap people in debt because then you have to work. And you have to work usually for a corporation that's going to provide you benefits because you have to pay back such a large sum of money. So it's really a form of debt slavery that. You know, has been sold to us as as universal education, which Americans, in particular, love the idea of that. <laughs> you know, uh, I was this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was reading um, Herbert David Crowley, who is a progressive socialist of the uh, early nineteen hundreds, a total technocrat, and he mentions how we. How Americans, in particular, have this uh, naive faith in the goodness of education. So it's something that's that's always appealed to our sort of national psyche, and uh, and I think that that was a good way to hook generations into exorbitant amounts of debt that they could not repay because they think education is good, it's it's a worthwhile investment, and so on and so forth. That ends up, you know, they leave university with large amounts of debt, and then they're trapped in the workforce. And the last thing that technocrats want is someone who is self-sustaining, who does not have to work, and who can engage in, you know, productive leisure, you know, studies and Art and other things, you know, genuine scientific inquiry and and discoveries. So that's the first thing is that it was trapping people in debt. I think, I think if I can be very honest, I think that there's an an almost uh, supernatural intelligence that's some of the that's guiding this social engineering process. And that's not to say that it is one person who's doing it or a group of people who are brilliant or something like that but there seems to be something very big that has brought many different pieces together and i can't explain that but but i think part of the the larger plan that's been at work in addition to trapping people in debt it is to make human beings dis or Americans in particular to really turn against higher education and liberal arts and the idea, the kinds of studies that are appropriate to a university. So, you know, you've seen universities develop these like goofy programs, like you mentioned, like basket weaving or something. And I think those are, those have been encouraged Um, but I don't think that those are the norm. So I think a lot of people go to university and they take out a large amount of debt and then they get a degree in something like, uh, psychology or, you know, maybe sociology or political science. And that's not, it doesn't translate easily to the corporate workforce, but it's not as, as um, it's not as out there as people might think, you know, it's not as silly as people might think. Um, now I, I think that learning is good for its own sake. And I was very thankful to go to university and have expert guides to help me in that process. I needed the help, um, identifying the, you know, great books and a canon and, and I appreciate authority in that in that regard. But so so I want to say that that has a value for its own sake, and and that might be worth going into debt for just because you love it, <laughs> and accepting the responsibility that that might uh, impede your future choices. So that's one. That's sort of point two. A I guess is that. We have had the introduction of silly studies um, to kind of make those into paradigms that say, oh, when you go to university, you get these goofy degrees that aren't worth anything. And I want to say, well, there are some degrees that are worth something, but they're not immediately translatable into corporate skills. But that doesn't mean that they're not valuable and I think that we've gotten some confusion about what education is and and its relationship to the workforce that has really frustrated us as a society. We're struggling to understand what is who should go to university, um, who should go to college, who should go here or there. Then the debt factor complicates that discussion. Or and that conversation that we need to have, um, you know, in our families and our communities. But the confusion about it has, has not generated like rigorous inquiry or into, you know, how do we start to understand what, what people should do after high school? Instead it's given rise to a big a massive distrust of learning. <laughs> and I think it's turned people away from the th- from theoretical inquiry. And it has really focused people's attention on money making and then certain practical skills. Now we all need to make money and practical skills are very important. And I've always been an advocate of trade schools and, busting the myth that everyone should go to university. But I don't want to say that liberal studies that might appear useless, (laughs) I I don't want to say that those aren't worth paying for. So I think it's very complex what's happened right now and how we, you know, whose responsibility is it? Is it the universities? I don't know. It seems to me that we have universities who are competing for students. And so how do they compete by offering all of these services that are, that are, um, they're extraneous. They're, they're not at all related to learning the content of certain disciplines and those services or or activities, you know, like I went to Baylor for, my graduate work and they had a big rock climbing wall and I thought why on earth do you you have this you know but that's to attract freshmen 18 year olds who come they look and they don't know what they want to study and they don't know why someone ought to read say you know the history of of China in the, I don't know, the 12th century or something. They have no idea about that, but they do know that a rock climbing wall is cool. And so universities have taken this endless stream of federal dollars and they've used it not to beef up faculty or academic programs, but they've used it to pump into student services and activities that will make the university attractive to I think a smaller number of students that they're competing for. Now, whose responsibility is that? I'm not I'm not really sure, honestly. But but it's a big problem and I think you know, it <laughs> I have some student loan debt and yeah, it would be nice to get rid of it, but there's no way that I would ever sign off on a debt forgiveness program that required what I'm sure Biden's plan will require. Um, and that's going to be the loss of your freedom is probably going to require a COVID vaccine and yeah. digital identity. And to me, I'd rather, you know, I'm glad that I paid for the education that I got, even though it's kind of useless now, <laughs> but I'm going to, keep my debt and keep my freedom.
1: (laughs) There's no such thing as a free lunch. And, you know, I went to school, graduate, undergraduate, graduate, and I worked full time along the way while I was Mm -hmm. pursuing that. And uh, thankfully, I didn't have to take any loans because it's all paid. But I worked for it. And for somebody to tell me that all these people who are out there who decide I don't need to work, I have too many credits. Well, I had too many credits too. Why should I pay for those decisions? How many people pursue a degree whose profession may not even may not even be available when they graduate in four or five years? Shouldn't universities have their own think tank in order to predict what will be in demand in the future? And you use two words. At the same time I was always thinking them. Trade schools. I bet there are many people who went to trade schools who are earning more than many who graduate today and are saddled with debt. But then again, We're entering the fourth industrial revolution, and I want to leave this for part two because this is the part where we always get censored, and I want to preserve that when we come back after the break. Also, I want to discuss killing two birds with one stone, COVID-19, and Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030, however you prefer to call it. All these things when we come back. How can people learn more about your work
2: Well, I'm I'm on Facebook and that's really the only site that I have. I might put together a blog, but you can look I have a public profile. It's my personal profile, not a page, and it's Julianne Romanello and I have a shirt on so you can see it says resist the new world order.
1: (laughs) I enjoy it. I enjoy your posts that you post almost on a daily basis. Well folks don't go anywhere. I'm here with Doctor Julianne Romanello. A lot more when we come back we have left the best for part two because you know right now the censorship is off the charts to the point that we need to get rid of this i forgot the resolution 230 that allows all these technical uh, de- de- technocrats to dictate what happens without any repercussion but all of this when we return
3: this is mel Hostelrek and you are listening to veritas don't go anywhere thank you for listening to the first part of this important veritas interview To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.